Welcome back to the PEED space. Palette Life Sciences, sponsor of this podcast, is committed to bringing educational tools such as the PEED space for sharing best practices and compelling conversations across a wide variety of pediatric urology and VUR topics. The content of today's episode is solely the opinion of Dr. Steve Hodges, board-certified pediatric urologist at Wake Forest Baptist Health in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. This is the second episode of our series on bowel and bladder dysfunction. I'm Cynthia Hanna, and today I will be talking with Dr. Hodges about the role of bowel and bladder disorder in vesicoureteral reflux, how constipation affects bladder function, and BBD diagnosis and treatment. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Hodges. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'd like to start off and see if you could explain or define for our listeners what BBD is. Yes, I have a specific diagnosis or concept of bowel and bladder dysfunction that might differ from what's typically taught among some pediatric urologists and pediatricians. But what is the basis of the disorder in my mind, in my opinion, and in my practice is delay and defecation. So children all over the world of all ages tend to delay defecation, some more than others. What happens when when you delay defecation is that you accumulate an abnormally large amount of feces in the rectum, which is supposed to be the part of the colon that senses fullness and empties. It's not supposed to be a part of the colon that actually stores feces. So once you get an accumulation and dilation of the rectum, you develop bowel and bladder dysfunction. And what that can cause is bladder overactivity. And as we'll talk about uh, urinary tract infections, as well as vesicoureteral reflux. Interesting. Well, can you explain to our listeners as well what vesicoureteral reflux is? So most people have two kidneys and those kidneys filter the blood, make urine, and that urine drains down a tube called the ureter. And those ureters enter the bladder and the bladder then fills with urine stores the urine until the child or the or, or the person is ready to empty. When they empty, um, the urine should all come out the bladder, out the urethra, and not go back up. There is a one-way valve from the ureter coming down from the kidney into the bladder. So when a bladder is functioning normally, you should be able to fill the bladder all the way to almost rupture and no reflux would occur. In children with vesicoureteral reflux, because of an anatomic disorder, the valve, the one-way valve, where the ureter enters the bladder is dysfunctional. So when the bladder squeezes to empty, while some urine does empty, some urine refluxes back up to the kidney. This causes several problems that are significant in our practice. Incomplete emptying of the bladder, stagnant urine, which leads to UTIs, and then the urinary tract infections become much more severe because they're able to rise up to the level of the kidney. And once bacteria reach the kidney, they can cause a septicemia or bacteremia. The bacteria get in the bloodstream, they make the child very ill and can cause renal scarring. Interesting. So when do you usually see these children? Have they been treated by a pediatrician beforehand? Yeah, we get a lot of referrals for what we call uncomplicated UTIs, which are UTIs without fever, which are typically not associated with with reflux. And we also get a large number of referrals for complicated UTIs, which are UTIs associated with fever, which signifies to us that the bacteria have left the bladder gone up the ureters with the reflux into the kidneys. And the issue is that although pediatricians are very good at diagnosing UTIs, they're not as skilled at understanding what the causes are, how to prevent them, and how to treat them, uh, either surgically or non-surgically. And you had mentioned, I think, constipation. So how does constipation and UTI play into like this disease process, bowel and bladder disorder? Yeah, and this is where it gets kind of tricky. Because the words are really important. Um, the semantics of what constipation means to different people can be a, a barrier to treatment. 
So let's say a child comes into my office and I say, you know, you're constipated. That's why you have vesicoureal reflux and infections. And the parent says, well, my child can't be constipated. And they poop, you know, every day. And so it's first, I think the best thing to do is to define again what we mean by constipation. And what I mean by it is a child that doesn't, you know, defecate on time. So when they get the urge of a bowel movement, they don't go right away, put it off maybe all day, maybe several days. And so the feces accumulates in the rectum over time in a way that's not normal. And so when you have feces accumulated in the rectum over a prolonged period of time, you get dilation of the rectum and the, the bacteria that are in the feces, which is predominantly E. coli, can then migrate into the bladder very easily and cause UTI. In fact, by far the number one cause of UTI in little girls is this abnormal rectal distension with fecal impaction, which due to the female anatomy where the urethra is only a short distance from the anus, leads to infections quite rapidly, especially pre-puberty and then post-menopausal. Is there a, so is there a certain age that these children present? Yeah, typically infections. Now, it's, it's interesting because if we mentioned there's uncomplicated UTIs, which are without fever. Those are almost always right after potty training. And so, you know, the, the child was peeing and pooping on their own uh, in the diaper with no issue. But once they were toilet trained and started withholding a little bit, the infection started. And that's very typical to see little girls in my office between the ages of three and five with uncomplicated UTI. Depending on the severity of the reflux, as you all know, and maybe some of our listeners don't know, we, we grade reflux from, you know, low grade, which is grade one to two higher grades, all the way up from three, four to five. The higher the grade of the reflux, the more likely they are to present with an infection at an earlier age. And those infections can present, you know, right after birth even. It doesn't have to be after potty training. And in fact, when a child presents with a UTI with fever, Prior to prior training, it's almost always a, a case of a ureteral reflux. And so there is a little protective effect with age. Uh, as you age, reflux tends to go away. You tend to outgrow it, tends to dissipate. Also, bowel and bladder habits tend to improve as children mature. And so, you know, a child that's, you know, a little bit older might know that it's more important to go to the bathroom in a timely fashion. And then after a puberty onset in, in, in girls, there's a hormonal influence that's protective against infections as well. That's why we see most of the infections in little girls before puberty, although you can see them, you know, when they're hormonally active. But there's also another increase after menopause. So that's very interesting. And so let's talk about how you diagnose and management and treat the situation. Yeah. And I wanted to add in a point as we get into that. Not only does the, you know, the, you can imagine this uh, end of this colon, this kid is getting really full and dilated and full of poop, you know, the best way to put mm -hmm. it. And it's causing all these problems. But not only does it cause infections and can cause bladder dysfunction where the bladder has bladder spasms, they can't control their urine. So it's actually the number one cause of bedwetting, overactive bladder, kids having to rush to the bathroom at the last minute or peeing frequently. But also it, it distorts the anatomy of the bladder. So as the bladder lifts up, because of this mass effect behind it, the ureters are pulled laterally and it increases the incidence and the prolongs the occurrence of reflux. So we found that if you can really aggressively treat this bowel disorder, can increase the odds that the child will outgrow reflux and also speed up the process. So what we do is if we come in, you know, it's almost this point where, you know, if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, we mm -hmm. know what it is. But if a little girl comes in with febrile UTIs, bedwetting, daytime wetting, we do some kidney bladder ultrasounds to make sure that there's no scarring in the kidneys. We can do a study called the VCUG, which could diagnose reflux if they're having febrile UTIs. But a lot of our workup involves just a plain KUB x-ray. KUB x-ray is just the kidneys, ureter, bladder. It's basically abdominal 
plain film. And what you'll see in these children is you can actually see the what we call constipation or the abnormal accumulation of, of, of poop on the x-ray. And then that can be a great tool to show the parents because, you know, the parents may think the child's emptying their bowels daily, but the child may not be emptying in a timely fashion and definitely not emptying completely. So with the tool uh, like the x-ray, we can visually demonstrate how full they are and get the parents on board for an aggressive treatment protocol. And then we get into, you know, treating and, and treating a uh, Constipation in kids it can be a challenge, um, and we use lots of different tools. We we use simple things like Miralax, which are osmotic laxatives. We use some stimulant laxatives, such as Xlax, and, and we actually use a lot of enemas and suppositories just to get to the area of the colon that have the most significant impaction. And, you know, I have a couple of rules I live by. Number one is they're not empty until you've checked and they're empty, because you could have a lot of doctors, a, a lot of the errors I see most pediatricians make is that they'll say, oh, you know, you're constipated here, take an X-Flex every day for a few days or take a, do a Miralax clean out and they think they're done. But these kids that we're seeing, they've been impacted for months to years. Their colon is like chronically dilated. So it's actually a two-step process. You have to get them completely empty, which is hard. And then you have to keep them empty. So their colon can have time to shrink back down to normal size. Because if I took a child that was significantly constipated and, and magically cleaned them out with the Miralax clean out or whatever, their colon would still be potentially dilate, you know, have the potential space that could fill. And so mm -hmm. they wouldn't poop again until they felt the urge to poop. And so they would just, the process would recur. So it, it definitely, I want to stress, it's a chronic treatment. You have to keep treating them over and over. And uh, interestingly, you know, a lot of the accidents that are typical uh, in young ages, such as bedwetting and daytime wetting, are associated with these problems as well. And they can be kind of signs that you're getting where somewhere. For example, if I have a child that's having, you know, encopresis or poop accidents or pee accidents or bedwetting, those accidents should resolve if we're doing a good job cleaning them out. And we know, we will know that they're actually adequately cleaned out when those accidents uh, have all disappeared. Yeah, I can imagine it's hard or challenging to explain to a parent that they come in with bedwetting issues and you send them home with Marilax and trying to connect those dots that the constipation is indeed a part of the bedwetting issue. It's, it's a struggle. And I think the x-rays are, you know, honestly, I get the x-rays these days more as a, a way to show the parents because I'm convinced of the pathology almost always. So I, I do that as a tool. And it's, I think it's real important to carefully explain what we mean by constipation. Because if you just say yeah. constipated, people think, well, you know, that means only pooping rarely. Or, or, and some people think it's normal to poop, you know, once a week or something. And so there's a lot of misconceptions. Right. We have a lot of, you know, YouTube videos and drawings and books that help help get the message across. But it's definitely a, an educational process. Yeah, I can imagine because I know as a mother and a nurse working in a pediatrician's office that parents, you know, they do think that if a child, you know, has one bowel movement a day, that everything's okay. And it's really difficult to explain to these parents about a high fiber diet and that, you know, chicken nuggets are not considered part of a high fiber diet. And, and also to get a child to eat fiber in their diet and change, you know, some of the, the eating habits. So how do you address that with as far as lifestyle along with your regimen? Yeah, you know, we, we've, we focus on a few societal issues that we feel contribute to this problem. One of them is there's a lot of pushing to toilet train kids early. You know, there's a lot of mommy shaming for kids that aren't potty trained. And I, I, we found that, you know, about three years of age, three and a half is when a child's, you know, mentally and physically able to kind of understand the concept. And we like to push parents, you know, in a kind, you know, not dogmatic way, but just to, to not train so early because it's, it's possible to train a one year old or a two year old, but they may not know. Well, they definitely don't know that it's important to go in a timely fashion. 
So it'd be very easy to get a kid out of diapers, but then how are you going to know if they're pooping or peeing when they need to? And the answer is you won't. And so there's a lot of pressures uh, societally on social media, as well as in preschools to train kids early. And so we're trying to educate regarding that topic. Secondly, there's a lot of bathroom access issues, you know, in early ages, preschool, kindergarten, the bathroom may be in the, in the, in the classroom. But beyond that, there may not be a bathroom in the classroom. And there's lots of horror stories of children not being allowed to go to the bathroom or bathrooms not having toilet paper or working doors or, or just not being a safe place. So we're trying to make it so that parents know to ask about that, you know, are, are the bathroom safe or there's something where the child can go, allowed to go, because they, we don't want them to go to school all day and, and, and be, be holding things in. Then obviously diet and exercise, you know, we have a kind of the cliches of these uh, modern kids not eating a, a healthy diet, and playing a lot of video games. And so uh, regular physical activity, eating a uh, balanced diet. And my wife's a nutritionist, so she she definitely has influenced my thoughts on that. But I'm also a parent, which I know how hard it is to get a kid to eat, you know, a healthy diet. Yeah. So I, I try to balance it out. I say, you know, I, I don't give them just whatever to eat, but I try to give them an you know, a good balanced diet, the best you can. But if they're not going to eat, you know, a pound of broccoli, which is probably what you need to keep a kid regular, then Miralax is fine to add or other osmotic laxatives just to split the difference. So you want to do the best you can, but there's tools out there that can help you if you can't get the diet out in just right. Well, I know that you have a website that is just chock full of information and resources for parents. And I urge our listeners you know, if you're struggling with this, that you, you check out Dr. Hodge's website. We've, uh, our website is www.bedwettingandaccidents.com. And on that site, you'll find a lot of kind of do-it-yourself advice, free advice. There's paid advice. There's a lot of uh, blogs that have a lot of uh, educational information and also links to purchase any of our books. We've written several books on this topic. And our, our philosophy is, basic philosophy stayed the same, but we've adjusted the protocol. Like in real time, you know, we have a large Facebook uh, page and we get feedback from parents on a daily basis. And so we, we're constantly searching for the best way to either prevent these problems in children or to treat them when they when they come up. And not every kid's the same, but I can tell you uh, all this stuff is is really hard. If, if you have the wrong genes and the wrong personality, some kids may just be the kind of kid that really doesn't like to go to the bathroom. It can be difficult, even if you think you're doing all the right things. So what I like to say is if you have a child that's having accidents, don't listen to doctors that say, oh, they'll outgrow it or oh, they're doing it you know, on purpose, if a child can't stay dry after potty training, then there's got to be a medical reason, either a significant one that, you know, maybe may have been missed or the common one, such as the one we're discussing where constipation can be a prime role. Either way, I think a workup by a urologist like myself uh, would be indicated and we can help you with that uh, on the website. Thank you so much today, Dr. Hodges, for sharing your time and your expertise. And I want to thank our listeners as well for joining us this week on the Pete Space. We hope you enjoyed Dr. Hodge's perspective and feel free to share this podcast while we deliver more pediatric urology focused content in the coming weeks. There are some great resources at deflux.com. And additionally, you can learn more about our company and our products at palatelifesciences.com. Thank you again, Dr. Hodges. 